0: I think no matter what lexicon you use around your addiction, whether you say that you're sober or clean or alcohol-free or teetotal or drug-free, whatever you want to use, the only thing that matters is remembering the darkness, the place you found yourself, and never wanting to go back there.
1: Welcome to The One You Feed, Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Catherine Gray, who is one of very few guests to ever be on the show three times. Maybe she'll be the first to be on four times. We don't know what the future holds. But Catherine Gray is a writer and author who lives in the UK. Her first book, which we interviewed her about, was The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, which is so great it became a bestseller. And then today, Eric and Catherine discuss her new book, Sunshine Warm
2: Sober, unexpected sober joy that lasts. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me.
2: I am so excited to have you back. We don't have a lot of three-time guests, but I'm so happy to have you be one of them. We're going to be talking about your latest book, Sunshine Warm Sober, Unexpected Sober Joy That Lasts. But before we do that, we'll start like we always do with the parable, which you will get a third try at here. So don't mess it up this time. (laughs) Um, You know how the parable goes. There's a grandmother who's talking with her granddaughter, and she says, In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And then there's a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops. She thinks about it for a second. She looks up at her grandmother, and she says, Well, grandmother, which one wins? And the grandmother says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you and your life and in the work that you do.
0: Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, that has a daily resonance for me. I feel like inside me every day, there's like this puppet show with the good and bad wolf like (laughs) punching each other like sock puppets. And for me, it really boils down to, so I have a very negatively biased brain, as most of us do. Study after study has shown that when bad things happen to us, we give it this profundity and significance in our brain. And when positive things happen to us, we just let it slide on by. It's like that famous quote about our brain being Velcro for the bad things and Teflon for the good things. I can't remember who said it. and I apologize. But every single day, I have to make sure I feed my good wolf with the good things that are happening in my life and just hang on to them so that they don't slide away and starve my bad wolf who wants to throw all of the negative things that happened that day up onto a big screen. So that's how I think about it.
2: Yeah. And we're not going to talk a lot about the book you wrote before this one, but I did get something very valuable from that book about this very thing you're talking about, which is Holding on to the good things and giving them a little bit more focus. And what I took from that book that after years of doing gratitude practices, I never really got until I saw the way you did it in that book is the specificity. It which I go into and think about the thing that occurred. I've only been doing it since I read that uh, several days ago, but it just something in me sort of clicked. And just the last couple days, as I've written out my gratitudes, they're just more alive with that specificity.
0: Oh, I love that! That makes me so happy. That means I've done my job. So I think when people do gratitude lists, and this is something that I do every day, as I said, to help my good wolf win. And it's something that people tend to do. And they tend to say things like, I'm grateful for my car. I'm grateful for my flat. I'm grateful for my dog. I'm grateful for my partner, that kind of thing. They go too big. And Mm -hmm. these things don't change from day to day. So what I discovered, because I fell into this trap myself when I started doing gratitudes eight years ago, was that if you funnel down to the specifics, I can't say that word, (laughs) to the specifics of the gratitude, then that becomes so much more powerful, which is what you've discovered, which just makes me really happy.
2: Yeah, yeah, it really does make a difference. So. Let's talk about Sunshine Warm and Sober. At the time of the writing of the book, you were eight years sober, I think. So where does that track to where you are now?
0: I'm still eight years sober. Okay, okay, all right. (laughs) I'm just just a little way into it, so I'm like almost eight and a half years sober. I don't know whether you want me to go into this, but my first book was The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, and I wrote that when I was four years sober. And I honestly thought that book was it. I thought, you know, (laughs) I've learned all the stuff I'm going to learn pretty much about sobriety and non-drinking and my drinking days and recovery and addiction and all that. Um, You know, obviously there'll be updates with the news, but honestly, I thought that evolvement had mostly been done in those first four years, which just now, I'm sure you can probably relate, seems quite absurd. It just seems preposterous because I've done just as much learning in the last four years about how to be a sober adult so I think when I wrote wrote the first book I was basically a sober teenager I think you're like a newborn for the first year of sobriety then you're a toddler and then you're like an adolescent so only now that I consider myself what would be you know a, a sober adult So, yeah, that's what the second book is all about. It's a sequel.
2: You said a bunch of things in there that that I could reflect upon. But I think there is a line, it's a line that doesn't exist, where we go from, quote unquote, being in recovery to just being a human being who Mm. goes through the same things that everybody in the world goes through. And I think at a certain point, that's what recovery starts to look like, is it just starts to be about living as a thoughtful committed good human being which i think always takes effort and there's always hopefully if you're doing it right always learning
0: absolutely and i think when you're in the first few years of recovery sorry i've got a puppy and he's got a bone i'm just going to try and get it off him because it's going to be very noisy (laughs) (laughs) He's in a very playful mood which is great timing I think something that's also very true is that we tend to, in the first few years of recovery, we set, if we're anxious or if we're excited or if we feel any strong emotion, we sort of count that as being triggered. Yeah. You know, we we think, oh, I'm, I'm being triggered to drink. Whereas, now, I don't think of those emotions in that way. It's just it's just a spectrum of emotions that everyone experiences. But I think of my addiction quite differently. I, I don't think of myself as, you know, forever addicted. I think of it more in the neuroscientific way, which is that the addictive superhighways fade over time. So just as I don't consider myself like still addicted to smoking, which I quit seven years ago, but if I restarted smoking, I would become addicted to it again. Those two things coexist. So that's how I think about my former addiction. You know, it's not necessarily the norm, but it served me that way of thinking about it.
2: Yeah. And so much of what you write in this book is about that things are on a spectrum or there's lots of shades of gray or there's no uh, this or that answer shows up through so many different things that we could talk about as far as what we know about addiction, what we think addiction is, how we recover from addiction. And at the same time, there is that one fairly stark, bright line that says for most of us, our experience is if we drink or use again, we are going to end up in trouble again
0: absolutely and i think that's why a lot of people do feel safer um the majority of people feel safer defining themselves as an addict or alcoholic for the rest of their lives because they see that as you know the daily reminder that they shouldn't drink or use right because they will become re-addicted and the neuroscience supports that as well because it doesn't matter how you know I haven't drank for eight years, but those well-worn pathways in my brain, even though they're cobwebbed and disused, they're still there. And they're almost like an overgrown highway. You know, it's not just a little country lane. It's, it's, it's <laughs> a proper prominent, like Route 66. So that's not to be tested, in my opinion. Yeah, I think once you've become addicted to something, if you restart, you will more than likely become addicted again. Why take the risk?
2: Yeah, well, what's interesting is I was somewhere around where you are in sobriety, probably a little bit less. It might have been seven years, my first time around, and I drank again.
0: Oh, really? Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah, I think I've been back sober about 14 years. Yeah. I think it'll be 15 years in February. But yeah, it was around eight years, um, seven to eight that I, I went back out and it's really, it's really interesting because I did a lot of the healing that you are describing and talk about in the book. And yet I still drank again. Mm. And like you said, it's obviously I'm on a podcast where I talk about my recovery journey again. So we know how it turned out, right? It didn't, it didn't work out going back out. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I thought I could handle it and I didn't, I couldn't.
0: Yeah. So my dad, he's unfortunately no longer with us, but he went back out at eight years as well. Mm -hmm. And again, that was short-lived. And then he came back and did 23 years. So maybe there's some sort of seven-year itch or something when it comes to recovery. But Yeah. I mean, you're never immune, are you? And the book goes into these stats, which are really fascinating. So once you've done one year of sobriety, you've got a 66% chance of sustaining it. Once you've done two years, oh no, sorry, it's 36% after one year. After two years, it's 66%. After three years of sustained sobriety, it's 86%. But that's not 100%. So there's still that 14% falter rate which means that you can always fall down the rabbit hole again. So I think for me, it's it's almost the two things living together at once, coexisting, that I don't want to be defined by my former addiction, but I also know it's still there if that makes sense. And the possibility for it to resurface is always there.
2: Yep. I agree. It's 100% that way. And that's why I was saying it's like, there's a lot of gray area and we'll get into some of these. How different is an alcoholic from a normal person? Is that even the right word to use? You know, how do we define ourselves? Which I think there's room for a, a lot more nuance except up to the point of, at least in my case, the moderation line. Because you said in the book, you know, the question that most people have at some point is maybe I can moderate now. And you said, yeah, yeah, you'd wager that most of slips or relapses, whatever you want to call them are down to the, maybe it will be different thing. And that was absolutely what mine was. And mine used my healing against me. It's very fascinating because it went, look, you did all these years in AA. You worked the steps a bunch of times. You've been to therapy. You you did all this inner child childhood repair work. You've been to counseling. You've done all these things. You're a healthy, reasonable <laughs> human being now. And you're
0: fixed. <laughs> yeah,
2: and you were just young at that age, and you know you were doing heroin, which of course is a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. But a couple (laughs) drinks aren't going to be a problem. You know, you make good decisions in other areas of life. Oh. And it didn't, like I said, didn't turn out. What's interesting, it wasn't an immediate disaster. You know, in AA, we were always so strident. Like, if I go back out, I'll be... A prostitute and selling my body for drugs in the next eight minutes. Like, we we're so dramatic about it. <laughs> and that was not my case at all. I started off and I had a drink and then I, nothing bad happened. I had a couple more, nothing bad happened. But over a period of years, it just slid back into the same abyss.
0: Yeah, it always does. And I've seen it with, with all of my friends pretty much that have gone back out that maybe it'll be different this time. Voices one they've always found the same. There's a few months or six months or even a year of where it looks like it's going to work out. And then it doesn't, it just slides back into that darkness. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah. I just think once you've been to that dark place, you're always going to be taken back to it if you pick up again. So, I mean, for me, it's not something that I in any way, nurse a notion of wanting or being able to do again, any more than I would nurse the notion that I can outrun lions you know <laughs> uh, it's yeah. just yep. it's a bad idea for me yep. uh, so yeah but then people when when I explained to them that I no longer call myself an alcoholic I've stopped defining myself that way when I was about four or five years sober I did it secretly at first because I was very scared of offloading the word I've been taught mm-hmm. that if you offload the word addict or alcoholic then you may as well have pressed a button on the relapse machine <laughs> mm-hmm. you know you're you're heading for a relapse you're cruising for a bruising so i did it secretly at first and then nothing happened and i just started feeling actually safer in my sobriety but then that's my story that's not the right way for everyone it certainly isn't if if one of the words make them feel safe they should keep it Yep. But I think no matter what lexicon you use around your addiction, whether you say that you're sober or clean or alcohol free or teetotal or drug free, whatever you want to use, addict, alcoholic, the only thing that matters is remembering the darkness, the place you found yourself and never wanting to go back there.
2: Yep. Yep. I wanna hit a bunch of points in there, but let's circle back fairly early on in the book where you talk about the definition of addiction and you've got some different experts who weigh in throughout the book who are awesome. But I wanted to talk about, you know, what do we think addiction is, if even that's the right word to use anymore?
0: Mm, Well, I mean, I I absolutely use the word addiction, Mm -hmm. but I just use it as more of an experience than an identity. So Mm. a person with an addiction rather than an an addict addict kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, the the definition of it would be you start out intending to consume or do a thing, and then the reality is different. So say, for instance, if I sit down in front of a cheesecake intending to eat one slice and then I eat three slices of it, then that's a bit of a cheesecake problem. (laughs) Yeah, Because I never you know, go on a night out intending to drink one soft drink and then have eight, which is what I used to do when I was drinking. So it's that difference, no no matter whether it's spending or gambling or what have you, it's the difference between what you intend to do and what you actually do. But a lot of my experts pointed out that the most recent clinical understanding of it is that it's more of a not a learning disorder because that's outdated now but it's more of a disordered learning so it's your brain learning that this thing helps whether it's a drug or a drink or a shopping website you know this thing soothes you and so it comes back to it again and again and again and again so it's more that your brain has just learned that something that is bad for you is good for you. And so it repeats it.
2: Right, right. It's interesting that, you know, the learning disorder theory came up and uh, disappeared fairly quickly. And I think the problem might be with that, that term, but I do think yeah. it points to, yeah, your brain learned something really, really well and then got stuck on that setting.
0: Exactly. Just like your brain classifies food and water and shelter as essential for survival. Once you're addicted to something, it classifies that thing as essential for survival too. So you really do think that you need that thing in order to live, which is why it's so hard to overcome.
2: Yeah, and when you put it in those terms, I just had that uh, visceral moment of that is exactly what it feels like. You know, when you're trying to get over an addiction and you don't have that substance, it does feel like you don't have something that is essential to life. And it's why I often talk about like one of the things that keeps me sober is never wanting to be in the place again where on one part of my brain knows very clearly that to consume this substance will be the end of me. So I will not survive if I do it. Mm -hmm. And the other part of my brain is screaming, you're not going to survive if you don't do it. And that internal tension is just a nightmare.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. A neuroscientist would probably say, although this is vastly oversimplified, that that is a fight in your brain between your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex, which is basically the child and the adult of your brain, if you're going to boil it down really simply. Because it's your amygdala that's generally where the seat of addiction is and it really believes that the drink is like oxygen i mean that's how i felt i really did feel that way yeah and so did you and but it's very difficult to explain this to people who haven't experienced it themselves
2: yeah yeah and then it may be amygdala to prefrontal cortex but it's almost for some of us particularly if we've tried to get sober a bunch and haven't been able to, it's like the fear of drinking is so strong too. It's just like these two terrors that are like trying to outbid each other. So when we talk about addiction – The other thing that I think is a more modern understanding is that there isn't like some line where it's like, well, up to this point, you do not have an addiction. And then the minute (laughs) you go past this, you suddenly do have an addiction, that there's a lot more um, gray area or scale on this. Some people would say we're all addicts to something in some way. How do you think about that now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think of addiction as a spectrum. And even though I was a seven or eight, or maybe even a nine at my worst. I'm actually seeing more and more that people are quitting when they're lower down on the spectrum, when they're five or six, because we're mm-hmm. living in a world that's much more, <laughs> I'm sorry, my puppy keeps taking presents from under the tree and trying to rip them up. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. We
2: he's should put make... him on the video. on,
0: i <laughs> I know, honestly, he's been really good all day and that just now. <laughs> become an absolute terror um anyway i've just taken everything away from him that he can do harm to so hopefully that
2: will be fine i'll tell you a funny story about dogs real quick to this note uh Jenny and i my partner we've got this uh, program called spiritual habits there's a second version of it that we lead and at the beginning of every session we do a guided meditation our dogs have decided, like that at that moment, they are going to go to their worst behavior. So, like I'm guiding <laughs> a meditation, and inevitably one of them is like <laughs> in behind me or. <laughs> I'm like, what are you? Do- what are you doing? You don't even ever do this normally. Like it is just. It's just unbelievable.
0: It's like they can sense it. Yeah. I mean, he literally just got his metal collar dog tag off his collar somehow and was trying to eat it <laughs> while I was trying to answer a question about neuroscience. So I was like using chicken to get it off. Oh, no, he's destroying his bed. Okay. We're just going to ignore him. All right. Um Yeah, they sense that you're doing something important, I think, just like children. And that's when they act up. Yep. Right, I've totally lost the thread of what we were talking about. What was
2: (laughs) We were talking about things being on a spectrum and you were saying people people who are lower down like a five are starting to quit.
0: Definitely. Yeah, because I I mean I think it's probably the same in the States, but here in the UK, everyone is so much more sober positive. And if you're at a party now and you say that you're not drinking, you don't get heckled like you used to, which is just amazing. Things are beginning to shift. And I just meet sober people all over the place now. Like It used to be that you couldn't find them unless you went to a meeting. Yeah. And now I'll bump into them at my co-working space or at yoga or whatever. And it just feels like so many people don't drink now not that there's a right way and a wrong way you know I don't believe that I think it's nuanced and people should do what works for them but yeah it's definitely a spectrum it's not a black and white thing as we've been led to believe Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com.
3: Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events, chef-prepared meals,
2: You were the first person I heard this from, and I think it's such an important idea, which is before this idea became more known, you were always looking like, am I an alcoholic? Let me, let me yeah. look at the numbers. If I am, then, okay, I have a problem and I should probably work on quitting. But if I'm not, eh. No big deal, right? And at least, again, you were the first person I heard put forth this idea, like, if your life is better without drinking, that's it. That's as simple as that. You don't have to get into this, am I an alcoholic? How bad am I? Have I hit bottom? All these other questions. It's just, would my life be better if this wasn't in it?
0: Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I spent so many lonely nights of the soul Googling Am I an alcoholic and doing quizzes and fudging my answers? <laughs> and, you know, I did that for years before I actually quit drinking. And it was only once I was convinced that I was that I quit drinking. And that's the other thing that's a problematic about the black and white, you know, normie versus alcoholic dialogue is that sometimes people think that they need to be really bad. In order to quit, it would be a bit like if um we said to smokers, "Oh just no, don't quit until you you're smoking forty a day, okay <laughs> right, right until then you're a normal smoker, but then you've tipped over into smoke holic and you should quit yeah that's kind of how we approach alcohol, and it's just weird, you know people are like, if you've still got a job, if you're not drinking in the morning, if you're not drinking spirits, then you're fine and you can carry on drinking. You just need to wait until everything is slipping out of your grasp and, you know, you're about to end up on the streets. That's when you quit, you know. It just doesn't make any sense to me, but thankfully that is – really beginning to shift and change and it's needed to for a really long time.
2: I agree 100%. I think it has needed to change, you know, and I think it it comes back to this question then of and I, I get this from clients a lot, right, which is they've got a bad habit which is the way we might refer to it. I've got a bad habit. I'm eating emotionally. I'm procrastinating. I am spending money in a bad way. I I am doing these things. And the question is always, well, is it an addiction or not? And I'm sort of less concerned with that because, I I, again, I don't think you can say, well, yep, it is. You are now officially an addict. It's like, well, you're not happy with it. yeah It's not serving you in your life.
0: It's causing you distress.
2: That's right. And the way that we're going to deal with it is going to be very similar whether we call it an addiction or whether we call it a bad habit or whatever we want to call it. Some people are very quick to call it an addiction. Other people don't want to hear that word. Again, it's describing behaviors on a spectrum. And uh, you're enough on the spectrum that this is problematic for you, whatever we want to call it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And like you said earlier, the am I addicted to it is the wrong question, really. The right question is, would my life be better without it? Yeah. If I stop this behavior or this compulsion or this consumption of this substance, that is the question. And so it doesn't really matter if you're addicted to it or dependent on it or whatever language you want to use it's about whether it's blighting your life and if you are coming to the point where you're even asking that question then the answer is yes it is <laughs> it is blighting your life because why else would you be researching that
2: yeah yeah you
0: know people who are who easily moderate a substance or shopping or gambling whatever they don't sit there at 3 a.m in the blue light of the laptop googling <laughs> am, I, am i an addict yeah, yeah. they just don't so just labels aren't necessary yeah. in order to tackle the root problem. That's, that would be the core message I would want to leave people with. But they're not wrong either, you know, it's whatever helps you.
2: You talked about this in the book about this idea of, you know, do we use those terms, alcoholic, addict? And, you know, you described how you've chosen to not use that term. I don't think about it very much. I would say, yeah, I am an addict uh, or an alcoholic Mm -hmm. is the word I would use, but only because I don't think about it very much. And I love you quoted, I think it was Tempest Recovery, who says addiction is an experience, not an identity. And that, that totally... I was like, yes, that's the wording I was looking for. And I don't really go to AA anymore. I think the thing that sort of pushed me out of AA was what you talk about here. Wasn't that word defining myself as an alcoholic, the word I'm like, okay, it doesn't, the word doesn't mean anything to me, but what it was And you talk about this in several different ways in the book, Uh, talking about people, describing people outside the room as normies. Mm -hmm. You talk about describing us as having an addictive personality. You talk about describing ourselves as like, well, I'm just an addict, so that's why I do that. What eventually got to me was like, I just went, I don't think I'm that different than the rest of the world, No, except I cannot moderate drinking. Okay. So in that way, that's an experience, but I just got so tired of seeing myself as defined by the tropes of what an addict is like.
0: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't identify with that more, as you know, and I'm, I'm definitely of the school of thought where I think most people are addicted to something It's just that the experience of being addicted to alcohol and other drugs, um, because we say alcohol and drugs, but alcohol is a drug. Yeah, yeah. is one that can savage your life and become a very visible and humiliating experience once you really get dependent on it. So, and other addictions like phone addiction, um, work addiction, they're very socially supported. Yep. You know, making money addiction. Is that work addiction? (laughs) You know, just that more, more, more addiction. That is 100% encouraged by our capitalist societies. And, you know, different addictions, they can still have, though, that detrimental effect on you. But they're just socially endorsed or reviled. So, yeah, it's something that I didn't want to be defined by for the rest of my life either, But everyone's individual and they see it differently.
2: Yep, it's so interesting talking about that, like what is socially acceptable, what is not. You know, I got sober that second time. And the first time I was a homeless heroin addict who was looking at going to jail for a long time. The second time I was a drinker who smoked marijuana, who also had the best job he'd ever had, was driving a very, very nice car, living in a beautiful part of town in a nice house inside I was just the same. It's just that alcohol was legal and heroin was not. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. it was that basic. Otherwise, there was no difference in how sick I was. And I just didn't have to do the things as an alcoholic that I had to do to get heroin.
0: Absolutely. Because
2: I could walk to any store that I drove by and I could walk in and get my drug at a very affordable, reasonable price. And so it does speak to that idea of the way we define the substance has a lot to do with it. I also do think that drugs are a little bit different than say gambling or phone or sex addiction or... And the way they're different is both types of addictions change the brain by what your brain is learning and by the neurochemicals that you're generating. They both do that. But drugs and alcohol in addition to the way that sort of happens in the mechanism of addiction drugs and alcohol actually then are chemically on top of that changing the brain even more because that's what they are Absolutely, <laughs> they're brain changing chemicals right so you it's almost like you've got the double dose of it in that case
0: yeah thank you for pointing that out that is an important distinction and that's why those types of addictions could be all the more powerful and also destructive Um, what you just said about the heroin addiction versus the alcohol dependence and I bet the second time around when you got sober you encountered more resistance to your getting sober than you did the first time around because you know your life was so great and you were nailing everything and killing it at life yeah and you know that was very much my experience as well when I came out and said you know hey guys I'm an alcoholic because I've definitely embrace that word at first and I need to quit drinking I nobody apart from a few members of my family and my best friend who I'd lived with was like great decision <laughs> we will support yeah. you 100% with that I got a widespread reaction of you're not that bad just you know just yeah fine take a break but just do it for a month or so or you know maybe six months at most Um, You know, you're doing really well at life. It's just it's that relationship that's gotten you down or it's just you're a bit depressed. So you're drinking more than usual. And it's just such a strange social thing because you're doing this thing that is 100 percent a positive lifestyle choice. And yet people resist it. Yeah, they don't want to lose their drinking buddy. Yeah, um, so it's legal and it's socially celebrated and championed, and we're encouraged to grow up to be drinkers. So yeah, I think in in that way it is different to other drugs.
2: Totally, and I think some of it depends where you live and the culture that you're in. And but I mean, I have I've had a couple clients who are in that boat where it's like everybody around them is just like, "You're fine. What are you making such a big deal out of?" And I mean, that I I just, that's so hard. I mean, even at least, you know, when I got sober the second time, even though on the outside things looked good, the people who were closest enough to me were like, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, I was a disaster area. I just on the outside was holding it together. The resistance the second time was internal because the first time I had just so been so been beaten up by drugs and alcohol. The second time I had, but not as much. And so I had to keep saying to myself, like, do I really need to go (laughs) any further with this? Like, do you really need to ride the elevator down another floor? Do you need to get in a car accident with your son in the car because you've been drinking? Like, is that what this really is going to take? That's the conversation I'd have with myself where I'd be like... Mm. Okay, no, I guess I don't. But it, it was a little bit harder.
0: That's so interesting, that second sobriety. And so many people have a second sobriety. I mean, for me, it was uh, relationships, as you know. I, I yeah. realized three... Well, I can't remember how long it was into sobriety, but I realized that I was well and truly addicted to love and relationships and had to give those up Yeah. for a year in order to recalibrate. But yeah, a lot of people do have that kind of second sobriety where they realise there's another addiction lying beneath their primary addiction. Learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com.
2: That secondary addiction of love or sex for me was part of what dragged me back out into active drinking addiction again is because that addiction was running enough of my life that the core focus of a big part of what recovery is, and we may get to this if we have time, is about, you know, getting outside of yourself and caring about other people and having their well-being in mind that had receded from my life. And all I was interested in was me, 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 me again. And that was a big part, I think, of what was behind me going back out.
0: Yeah that makes sense.
2: So we're going to take a brief detour here to talk about, I know you must do this on purpose in your books because it's funny, but you come up with all these different ways of describing being drunk. (laughs) I don't know if the English just are better at this. They just have more descriptive words. (laughs) Whether you're searching them out, I don't know. But but I love reading. I'm just going to give a couple of them. One of them, you're describing being drunk, and you said, "I'm truly bat faced," <laughs> <That's
0: laughs> which one of I don't favorites. even fully.
2: I don't even fully understand. Uh, <laughs> clattered, spangled, <Yeah>. lashed,
0: <laughs> blitzed. <laughs> Lamp shaded. Yeah,
2: there's another one that says entices everyone to get their kit off and toast their tits. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think there's roughly a British thing. We have so many different words for getting drunk because it is basically a national hobby.
2: Uh, you know, it's like the Eskimos the, who have so many words for ice kind exactly. of thing. Exactly.
0: Or the Irish have, you know, 15 different words for rain.
2: yeah yeah that's
0: why we have so many of them because we get drunk so often so i think that that can explain it i think if you ask any british person they'd be able to rattle off at least 15 different words for drunk (laughs)
2: I think the U.S. used to be better at it because if you read the AA Big Book, which was written what back in the late 30s, there's some great ones in there, like, you know, Boiled as an Owl. Um, (laughs) You know, there's some good ones in there. I don't remember them all, but now I think uh, America as a whole, we're just less literate. So our words have just gotten to be less fun. But um, I I truly enjoyed that uh, throughout the book. I just kept looking for it. (laughs) We've hit on this a little bit, but let's talk about addictive personality and the correlate to it in your book, you've got two sections and I'm just going to try, tie them together. You ask the experts, can you have an addictive personality? And then you also talked about this, you know, narrative that some people have like, well, I'm just an addict, you know, like as they're binging on sugar or coffee or cigarettes, well, I'm just an addict. Mm-hmm. So is there an addictive personality? And if we have it, are we more likely to become addicted?
0: Well, I asked four experts and I specifically and deliberately chose experts with very different ways of thinking, Mm -hmm. from the very traditional AA way of thinking, right across to the more radical way of thinking, the more modern ways of thinking. And it was so interesting because three of the four said, no, there is no such thing as an addictive personality. What you can have is a predisposition to addiction. And these are things like anxiety being somebody who's anxious or being somebody who's introverted. But then the very opposite is also true Uh because people who are extroverted or more prone to be impulsive and spontaneous are also more likely to be addicted. So this idea of this singular addictive personality that a person can have is just not true. It's not backed up. And most experts would say that it's not a thing. I'm not going to say it's not true because that's that's too black and white.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But
0: most most experts, I think, would agree that it's there's no evidence for it. What you do have is certain characteristics in your personality that mean that you're predisposed, just like genetics or you know, a traumatic childhood predispose you to addiction. And the other thing is – sorry, I'm just <laughs> – my puppy's literally eating – Cotton wool. Uh, <laughs> I hope he's still alive at the end of this podcast. I, I hope seems so too. To be tra- trying to kill himself through various means. Um, no, <laughs> give that back uh, anyway. So, and the once an addict, always an addict. Something that I hear so much, and it just makes me feel really sad. This this kind of I'm just an addict narrative and that people tend to internalize and therefore think that they're just going to get addicted to everything because they once got very addicted to something. It's just not the case. I mean, for a start, if you've overcome a primary addiction, no matter what it was to, you have beaten an addiction. Yeah, you may not have beaten it forever. You may go back, but you still have that toolbox that you use to beat that addiction you know, whether you've been sober for four years or 40 years. So it's something that I just don't really believe in. I think that once an addict, always an addict is quite a destructive way to think of it. I think all of us are prone to addiction and all of us could fall into an addiction. So that's more the way that I think of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, You know, when we get sober from an addiction, there does appear to be more likelihood of falling into another one. And I don't think that's so much underlying personality so much as, as as you said, it is a series of risk factors that have added up to addiction. And we're still learning how to live without relying on some external thing to make us feel happy. But over time, I think that can change. It's funny. I've said this before. I answered that I was an impulsive person on personality tests up until a couple of years ago. Mm. And that is not the way any sort of description of me over the better part of the last 25 years would be, except for, yeah, I did go back out and drink for a while. Mm -hmm. But I'm not an impulsive, rash person. And yet I had that, I'm an addict. Thus, I must be impulsive that I continue to answer those things that way. And I know you're a fan of uh, Dr. Rick Hansen, you've quoted him in a lot of books. And I was talking with him recently. And he said something that just I was like, yes, that's exactly it. Although I think his his measurement of time is off. He said, everybody's self conception is at least six months out of date. And I was like, that is brilliant. <laughs> and for a lot of people, it's way longer than that. It could be that for people who were addicted, you know, have an addiction, and they've been sober 10 or 15 years, that personality they're they're self-conception may still be stuck on some really defining things that aren't true anymore I mean is not NAA there's people say this all the time around here like well I'm still a liar cheating a thief and I'm like well are you like <laughs> are, I mean okay maybe you are but but maybe you're not so it's interesting
0: yeah it's allowing yourself that room and having the permission to evolve beyond what you were yes and what you just said is perfect i mean i used to for for many 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 years i told myself and other people told me as well it was an echo chamber the story that i was dreadful with money right i'm terrible with money i'll never buy a flat i'll never be able to save money i'll never get out of debt and so obviously my reality reflected that Uh so we have to be careful what Molds we pour our stories into, yes, because that shapes our reality. Our perceptions of ourselves shape our reality. So it would be like you pouring some jello into a mold and being like, Oh, <laughs> how strange, it's now shaped like this mold. If you tell yourself that you're terrible with money, or you're impulsive, or that you get addicted to everything then you will then go and become that self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you change how you think about yourself, then often that can trigger a change in yourself. Or if you just look at the actual evidence, like when's the last time I told a lie? Am I still a liar? Am I still a cheat? Am I still a thief? When's the last time I stole? So yeah, you have to let yourself evolve and become better and champion yourself when you become better. I think it's really important.
2: Yeah, I love it. You talk about that in the book, our stories can become self fulfilling prophecies. And you have a line, I love the one you just used about pouring our stories into a mold. The other one that you said is it it becomes like a coat hanger that you hang the rest of your life upon, which is another really Mm. good analogy. And I think this is interesting, because, again, I see this sort of work working with clients, and the vast majority of my clients, it's not alcoholism or addiction work, right? But What I see is this tendency to say, like, I'm the kind of person who never follows through on things. (laughs) Yeah. And it's this interesting dance of, and it's the same thing with alcoholism and addiction. You've got to say, well, yeah, there's a real problem here, right? I've got to look at the facts and go, okay, yes, okay. Up till now, I traditionally have not tended to follow through on things that I started So, okay, that's who I am today. But like you said, we've got to give ourselves the freedom to move forwards. And I'm always looking for like a word, like what's the right word? Like tendency is a word that I sort of like. I might say, I have a tendency towards... X, you know, Mm -hmm. which is is true. You know, right now I have a tendency towards X. That can totally be changed and overridden. It's a very different thing. So it is a nuanced discussion. But I think the important part of it, as you're saying, is like, don't let it harden. You know, if it's useful, then learn what you can from it, but don't let it harden.
0: Yeah, because we can and absolutely do change. I mean, what you've just touched upon is so important to make yourself a person with the thing rather than the thing yes so i used to be a late riser now i'm a person who tends to get up early but i allowed that identity as a late riser to just become the thing that i always did and in order to change it obviously you have i mean i'm a big fan of atomic habits james clear Obviously, you have to start changing the thing in order for the new thing to become the new tendency. You can't just, you know, say you're an early riser and then you are. That's not what I mean. But you should allow yourself the wriggle room to evolve beyond that thing that you used to do, even if you did it for 21 years, like I drank for 21 years. You know, it's just so important to allow ourselves that room.
2: Absolutely. Well, we are at the end of our time. I could talk to you all day. You and I are going to continue to talk for a little while in the post-show conversation. We're going to talk about two riveting things. We're going to talk about, you've got a line, we repeat what we don't repair. You say, I think that untangling your childhood in therapy is one of the most important things to do. So we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about a new hobby that we both have discovered, which is bouldering. So we're going to talk about that in the post-show conversation. (laughs) Listeners, if you'd like access to that, uh, you can get access to all the post-show conversations, ad-free episodes, a special episode I do each week called A Teaching, A Song, and A Poem. You can go to oneyoufeed.net slash join. Catherine, thank you so much. Always one of my favorite guests.
0: Thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. May I just point one thing out, though, because I don't want to take credit for something that I didn't say. Yeah. So we repeat what we don't repair um, was a quote from a therapist called Christine something. I can't remember her full name. Um, It wasn't my quote, but I did. Yeah, I I used it as a chapter heading, but then quoted her within it. So I don't want to take credit for that because it's such a good phrase.
2: Well, if she doesn't have if she doesn't have a last name, we don't need to credit her. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I I know she she does. I'm kidding. (laughs) All right. The book is called Sunshine Warm Sober, Unexpected Sober Joy That Lasts. You can find it where you get books. We'll have links off our show notes also to all of Catherine's stuff. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I've loved this.